Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Dedu, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interviewed Tease Carlier, the co-CEO and co-founder of Van Mouth, one of our favorite brands here on the show, to talk about their new Van Mouth V, which if you've not seen it, is one of the most beautiful e-bikes I've ever seen and due to drop next year. It's a lot faster than anything they've done before. It's a speed Pedelec. So it was great to chat about them and that design decision and why Tease thinks we need to get more creative and lateral in how we think about these vehicles and what they can do and are regulated. Tease is also based in Taiwan, which manufactures most of the world's e-bikes, if you didn't know. So we also get to touch on that briefly. And I'm looking forward to bringing it back on in the future to do a more in-depth discussion about it. And with that, here's Tease. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. I have with us today Tease Kalier from Van Moof. How are you doing today, Tease? Yes, great. Thanks, Oliver. It's awesome to have you on. We've had your brother Taco, obviously, and with the launch of your new Van Moose V or 5, is it the V, the 5? No, is that... it's the V. Uh, it yeah, is the V. You're the first one to say 5. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's okay. I, I thought you were going all Roman numerals on us, you know? Look, I, I thought it was such an interesting vehicle, and I hit up some of the team and thought, yeah, you know, could we could we get a, an interview with you? And, and you were very gracious and said yes. So, look, I, I'd love to, I'm gonna, I can't wait to kind of dig in on that, but I really thought it would be useful for folks who maybe don't know a heap about Van Moof to maybe start there and then also a bit about your experience and where you kind of fit in with the company. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, happy to be here. I, I'm in Taiwan, usually, maybe one third of the time in, in, in Europe as well, but most of the time in Taiwan. And here in Taiwan, for Van Moof, we do already for 10 years a lot of the engineering and we arranged the whole supply chain, so manufacturing, the, the whole procurement uh, department, uh, those uh, those things. So you and Taco set up Van Moof. You just how did that even come about? Like, did you start just making bikes, and then you kind of pretty soon after that you realized like I need to go live in Taiwan? Is that how that came about? Ah, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, we started off in Amsterdam and we wanted to bring the Amsterdam way of cycling to the rest of the world. And doing that, we noticed that we have to, to really reinvent the bicycle as it was, you know, as a, as a, to, to become a real good city bike. I think there wasn't really anything like a city bike almost, you could, you could say. There was, it, people were just using very old crappy bikes in the city and that was kind of a city bike. Mm. But that was really limiting people in, in the distance you can ride or the riding pleasure you can have. And they're always breaking down, they wouldn't have lights. They always get stolen. We wanted to change that. And I also thought if we really want to make cycling big in the rest of the world, then we have to solve that first. And when we started, then how the rest of the bike industry works is they kind of buy parts from, from the shelf, right? So it's, it's, it's usually hop from Shimano and then you know, a couple of brands and then, and then smaller brands. You can basically design your bike from a catalog almost. But the problem there was, of course, if you want something different, then it, was, it would be impossible because all those parts are made by the millions, mm. uh, which, is, which is very efficient. But that's also why all the bikes kind of look the same and function the same. So 
we wanted to do something different with the lights and then that became instantly <laughs> a very intensive project on its own already just the lights because we had to completely design from scratch new lights that would fit in the frame that won't break down and with the wiring all through the frame so these were much bigger problems than to solve than I initially thought so we had a we had an excellent design in Amsterdam but so you, you we could design something but then to get from prototype stage to to actual manufacturing and do it on a competitive price because we you know you can make it better but you, you have to still have to we were a challenger right as a challenger you 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 don't want to stay in a niche so you want to you need to price wise you need to also be very competitive mm -hmm. and so that was a really big challenge and we had very little financially i mean like we were investing in the company ourselves for the first seven eight years and so so we had to do we had to get a lot done in terms of product development with with very little tools so and then then i moved to asia to taiwan and I, I, you know, here I could just get a lot more done. I could get a lot done for with, with, with very little budget. Yeah. You know, like you talk to a lot of the like other European teams or anything like that. And, and it becomes really clear that like, yeah, it's cool. It's easy to go and develop stuff. But like one of the things I've been really blown away with, with Van Moof has just been you guys, like 90% of your bikes are proprietary at this point, you know, like it's so with the S3 and the X3, like you've really gone right down into the core of like, well, what is it about the bike that needs to exist, especially if we're going to be putting these into subscription businesses. And I've spent a lot of time talking to Taco about this as well. You yeah. know, it's clear you've, you've, you've had, you know, it's been required having those connections and that level of understanding about how to build stuff that I don't, don't think a lot of other organizations might have had necessarily. Yeah, and it's definitely the hard way. I mean, it's it's just, it's very hard. And it's also, it's a reason why no one else, almost no one else get that done. You know, like in the car, in automotive, you see a Tesla get it done. But even the, the big established companies, they won't be able to follow on the same route, even though they have all the money, but they don't have the organizations for it. So you see that in automotive too, right? where most established brands can still not do an over-the-air update i mean <laughs> on a car it's crazy but if you really if you really understand how their supply chain and development works then it's very then it's very understandable why they can do that and the same is in the accounts for the bike industry it's the hard way but it's also the only way to really change mm. to really make a big change because you, mm. you we, we noticed and that was with everything in the company like we, we, we now control basically from the design of the first little screw to like all the way manufacturing, then logistics, then selling it, our own brand stores all over the world, our online strategy, then the surfacing we do ourselves. So we noticed along the way that if we really want to make a change, we have to do every step there ourselves. Like if, if one of those steps in that chain is still from, from from an old industry or from you know and then then we are we can't succeed there we can't change anything and and change was so badly needed there for for city commuting especially mm. Mm. Yeah. and so obviously you built the company up for folks who who are maybe new coming to this how big is van Moof now and like what's the number of staff but also the number of stores that you have and that sort of thing yeah, we grow massively during covid the last one and a half, two years, especially one and a half years, we went from, I think, 200 people to now about 900 people. Wow. Globally. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of growth. Revenue has been three times every year almost. 
uh, two and a half, three times. So we've been growing fast and we're just getting started basically, I feel, you know, it's just still a start. It's just still in the early days as it feels. Yeah. Totally. Well, I don't consider you to really have started until there's a brand store in New Zealand because we, <laughs> I, I have been wanting to buy one of your bikes since I first saw it in like 2012, 2013. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, whoever wow. designed that has like clearly just got their head screwed on because it was such a beautiful, like iconic design. And I've always wanted, and I've never been able to get one. And, and like, because I've never lived somewhere that I could buy one. And then you still can't buy them in New Zealand. You know, obviously very excited for you guys to be launching into all these other markets as well. But I, th I think there's, you know, there's so much untapped market. Just There are all these places around the world, especially with the explosion of micromobility and biking that you can see, especially with the e-bikes that you've designed. Yeah, it's actually one of the mistakes we made in the, in the, in the beginning that when we launched, it was... Our bike went like viral, as it's called, and that's 12 years ago or something. And it, back then, I had no idea, and even I think the word viral maybe didn't even exist, but that's how we call it now. And it just went, it went, we had the bike with the solar lights in it, it was charged by solar, and, and, and uh, it just went... Uh, it went all over the place. It went, went on all the blogs online. I, I, was, I was no idea what was happening. And then we got requests from all over the world. So we get a lot of distributor requests, Japan, Thailand, Australia, everywhere, America, of course. And, and we were just like, whoa, let's, let, you know, like sky is the limit. So we said yes to everything. And then it just turned out it wasn't there. There's not really a business model there if you didn't fully sort out your own stuff first. So, yes. And I'm not sure if there's a business model in it for us in the long term. I don't think so. We're, we don't have any distributors right now, indeed, in between for several reasons. But yeah, we learned the hard way. So we, we've been, we were selling all over the world. But it was, yeah, you sell a container and maybe two to Japan, but it's it's really hard there to get it out of the niche. And then at the end of the year, you just end up losing a lot of money. Although it's a lot of fun and we learn from it, but it's it was definitely not. Uh, and I still see it happening now with other companies, startups, and you get your you design, you, you, have a, you have a great design and, and you get requests from all over the world and you, you can't resist, right? You just yes. have to have totally. to do it, but it's, it's a dangerous one. Yeah. And I mean, I love that as well about, about how you've managed to do it now. And so for folks who are still coming to this relatively new on, on Van Move, you know, you can only buy them really either online or through one of these brand shops, but then they also have all these other parts of the service. So for example, like you've got the full services available. You also have the amazing bike hunters, which is still a thing, which I found was it like an amazing marketing tool, which is if your bike got stolen, you could call up one of these people that had GPS trackers on them and they'd go and track down your bike and bring it back to you, which yeah. is obviously like a, I think where a lot of people come across fan move. It was a, you know. Yeah, but it's, it's, it is, I agree. It's a very likable thing as well but the main reason we bring the story out is to to let you know as part of theft prevention so that as much as people know that you shouldn't steal that bike you shouldn't try to yes. steal it even and that's why we bring the story out in the first place and that really worked i mean a bike theft was a was or maybe still is but not for remove anymore but was a for remove also a really big problem it's the number one reason for people not to invest in a good bike and a good bike is essential to enjoy the riding a bike for longer distances in, in the city right mm. and in all the cities we were selling bike theft was a massive problem and the main reason not to buy a good bike 
Yeah. Well, I want to get into the V because I just, you know, I, I it's such a beautiful bike. And when I talk of like wanting to buy an S3 or an X3 in New Zealand, like it only went into super drive when I saw the Van Murphy. I, it's literally like one of the most beautiful bike I've ever seen. <laughs> wow, like, wow. Damn goodness. it, come on, you know, like... <laughs> I, I hope we can work out how to get a container down here to New Zealand. The chief of staff, Dave, for Van Move happens to live in the same city as me. He works entirely remotely. And I feel like maybe yeah. maybe I might be able to pull some strings if we can get one down here. Take us through the, the, the V. Like what what was the design thinking around it? What is it? What you know, how does it work? All that sort of stuff. Yeah, it comes from a belief that speed should not be limited for bicycles. I think it is really strange if you think about it, you know, that, that we limit the speed of, of, of bicycles while I don't want to make the comparison to cars too much, but of course there is small car you buy, you can, you can go 180 kilometers per hour, but you don't do that in the middle of the city. Of course not, you know, like because you're not allowed to and because it's not ethical, it's not, it's super dangerous. And, and then we're talking about 2000 kilogram vehicle that has a massive kinetic energy that if you make one tiny steering mistake, it have massive consequences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird that then with a bicycle, we would say, oh, you can only go 25 kilometers per hour and it should be limited and that you can definitely not go faster. And people cannot handle the freedom there still of saying, oh, you can, like there are certain rules or ethics in the city that you, like responsible use like it's so weird to to get your head around if you try to think about it with as a with a blank sheet and then, mm. and then look at the situation and and then and then come up with yeah yeah we should have we have to limit the speed of bikes because they really never can go any faster than 25 so it's so strange and well that being said i think there is a huge potential for faster electric two-wheel vehicles but especially bikes you know you, mm -hmm. with this bike you will you will keep the complete feeling of happiness of riding a bike it's not comes with a throttle or something it's, it will always be pedal assist it will have a very natural riding feeling but mm -hmm. you can go actually much much faster and that's not only to get there quicker you know it's not only to get there quicker that's some mistake some people think you know you don't buy the tesla that goes to two seconds in two seconds to 100 because you save half a second it's mm -hmm. because it's a lot of fun uh, yes. to do so. <laughs> and yeah i think with the v i mean this fun element is so important that you can look at everything from a very practical point of view you know look at it from uh, uh we need more cargo space we need more this we need we need safer this uh we need safer uh infrastructure it's all true but um uh, what's very important is that people having fun you know that we want i want to make the commute the best part of your day instead of the worst part of your day mm -hmm. and with the van move the current van moves are already pretty far there i think it's like it's a lot of fun to ride and it's very little worries because we solved the the, the theft problem and a lot of other hassles that came with with riding a bike we're all like eliminating them but then this is going to be really the next level you know it's going to be so much even more fun to ride it and and, and more suitable for longer distances i think it, these faster bikes really have the potential to to really influence how our cities look like you know it's mm. it's, it's a big one and it's also still a bit of a concept of course you know, for us it's, the bike is not a concept but it's a new category so let's say it that way so i'm i'm really thinking yeah 
I mean, I can't think of anything else other than there was this, there was this bike called the Stealth bike, and it would it would go to like sixty or seventy k's an hour, but it really starts to blur out of bike and into you know the category of being a motorbike because it's re- you know a lightweight yeah. motorbike at that point, you know. And I think we are going to continue to see blurring of these spaces as more and more people say like, yeah, I don't want a bike that goes 25 k's now. I want to be able to ride in with the traffic and be able to have that capacity and things like that. Especially if the bike is not that expensive and I get the feeling of doing a bit of exercise while I'm at it. I do have a couple of like technical questions and then I'd love to kind of unpack that a little bit. But like, do you know what the size of the motors will be in terms of kilowatts at this point? Yeah, so the wattage, it really depends per country. So you have, for example, in Japan, we'll probably register it as a as as a as a moped. So yeah, it sounds a bit weird, but there it seems to be very suitable for that country to to go that way. And then it can go 60. It can be pretty powerful. The the, the goal is that the rear motor gonna have like, gonna have a lot of torque, so you're gonna be extremely fast at the traffic light. And the front motor is is a bit more built for efficiency on higher speeds. So so that one will run more on the higher speeds if you just run a constant speed so that's the i think it's a really it's really important that, that bicycles are really well balanced you know you, you like i think nine out of ten bikes they're not well balanced if you pick them up they're really heavy on the front or the, usually the rear the electric bikes mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. and it's, it's always very important for us we balance it right i think we were one of the First, to really go big on the front motor, front hub motors were usually considered a bit for cheaper bikes and stuff, but actually the truth behind it that it's that that's not true. It made all the sense. It was just really hard to do it on the front wheel because you need to get the wiring all the way to the front wheel and you wanted to be internal. So you had to go internally through the fork. So it's actually, but it makes all the sense in the front. You know, you have a well-balanced bike there's plenty of grip on the front wheel. You never have a slipping wheel, and you have two-wheel drive, which you, you know you pedal yourself on the back wheel, and and you have the the support on the front wheel, which makes gives you a lot of grip in uh, in slippy conditions or if you want to ride in loose sand and all this stuff. So it it, it had a, and you can have internal gearing in the back. So it just really made all the sense to have it in the in the front wheel, and now. You see it it happened quite a lot more now which is which is nice to see. So it's going to have a front wheel of like a front motor and a rear motor. It's obviously full suspension which is the first full suspension bike that that you guys have done. I'm amazed that you're managing to doing suspension and then being able to also have a motor on the front as well. I mean that's it's like I feel it's like quite a very complex engineering problem. We, the lucky thing we have now, we have now more than 100 people in the R&D department. We're building a really strong platform now. So the the platform is really the all the electronics, so the main computer, and then connected with that is like the electronic locking or the electronic shifting. We're building a platform with a software on it or firmware that is all becomes really stable and we can use that same platform now for uh, different different types of bikes. So all the bikes will run on the same platform. And then we can move with a lot of speed now, you know, like a really big R&D team with a lot of uh, mechanical engineering and everything. So if we want to do, like you're saying, a challenge with the front fork and, and the motor and the wiring there, we can move really fast there now mm. because we don't need to focus. If we can focus less on the really hard part is building a very stable platform. And that's that's what almost no one is doing because it's almost it's almost impossible to do it yourself yeah yeah. we did it the hard way and 
Okay. We are really getting there now. Like it still it still needs lots of work, and it will be continuous improvement of of, of the core platform as well, because the, the volume goes up and up. So you you need to improve and make it more stable. But we're getting there. That took many many years to to get where we are yeah. now. The one thing that I, I you know when you say the top speed is sixty kilometers an hour, which in part is one of the reasons I think it's so so exciting is because I just think about it and go, one of those vehicles would get me, you know, around my entire the entire way around my city in you know minutes. It's it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think that that would be possible on a bike and be able to ride on bike lanes and all that sort of stuff. How does that, you know, as you say, it's different in every country in terms of you know, like in New Zealand, I think that that would likely be ended up regulated as a moped. It would be mo- regulated as a moped as a lot of others. It feels to me like you've really blurred the lines there in terms of where it would be able to be used for infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. Is that the intention? I mean, was that, do you anticipate that this is going to be a, it's going to be a conversation starter in a lot of different markets that you go into? It's definitely, yeah, definitely the intention. It is very, <laughs> very important that the, that the conversation needs to start yeah. now. You know, we're seeing that. I see it really as as a conversation starter for for the future. You know, and I'm, I'm and we're not sure in exactly which country how fast you can get uh, yet, but I really feel now is the moment, the right momentum for changing, pushing the limits or potentially changing some of the, the, the legislation, the, the, some of the, 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 the rules, because you see the need from, for everyone. And now the willingness to change is there. I think it's really the right time now to, to go for it. You know, like, like the technology is there, which is really important one. The, the, the consumer wants it. They want to go faster. And even governments, they really now see it as, you know, before governments saw it as always as a potential danger. Mm. They always think as a hassle and, and, and e-bikes, and especially if they go faster, it's all dangerous. Bicycles are dangerous. But now they're really starting to see it as a huge opportunity, I think. And that really just came from the last, in the last period that governments finally see it as, hey, this is not something we need to treat as a potential threat but we need to actually see it as a big opportunity to make our cities more livable and i think yeah and all those things together it makes it the right momentum now to to talk about Mm. and it's really hard now also for for governments to control the right speed eh? i mean you you see it everywhere electric vehicles and especially micro mobility they're very easy to yeah, well, even the ones that are legal, they're easy to find to tune, you yeah. know, to get to make them faster. Exactly. And then, yeah. and then, and then, other, and the other half of micromobility is is illegal on the road in the first place, in in most countries. So it's very very difficult to control. So that's also actually a bit still of a problem that cities need to solve. You know, that how how can we make it? And as long as they see it as a problem, as a really as a big problem, they will always try to fight it. But at some point, the people who live in the city, but also the government, they they really see it as there's so much need that for this for those for that micro mobility for bikes, scooters that they say okay, you know, really need to change it. And I think we're at that point now. But how it exactly will be, I think it will be different per country, and we and no one really knows exactly. Mm. It'll be really interesting to nudge that conversation along because I agree with you that, especially if there's a lot of consumers, right? Like if you were to ship one of these things into the country, I shipped in a, a boosted rev into New Zealand, and it was a fifteen hundred watt scooter, and you know it's a consumer vehicle. I was meant to theoretically, I think, go and register it as a moped, but you know, like there wasn't 
no, I've never been pulled. Nobody knows. You can't tell from the outside that it's it's one of these things. And I, I'm not entirely sure I should be revealing this on a public podcast, but <laughs> you know, it is. <laughs> but it is a thing. It's it's a, it's yeah. a real like yeah. You know, as you say, nobody can really tell. The vehicles are going to come. We need to come up with better systems for being able to manage that. You know. Yeah, and 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 I believe that the first thing you have to do is not they're looking in too much detail first. You need to look at the big picture. Mm-hmm. You need to, the big picture here is that the danger is a lot less than with the, the alternative right now, which is the car. So it's, it's a lot less kinetic energy that you're moving around. You know, like if you're talking about danger, then you would say this micro mobility should be able to go much faster than a car, of course. And it's only a danger to yourself. Well, we're all used to that. We can go mountain climbing, we can go skiing, we can go, we play soccer. Of course, it's, you know, like you, you, you control that yourself. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, you know, like how fast you can go in the city, you just let's make rules per area, how fast you can go with your, your bicycle. No, no matter if it's electric bike or not, maybe you just want to limit it because you don't want people racing in the city. Yeah, I think... We definitely need that. And do you need a driving license at some point to get on a motorized vehicle? I think you should maybe have yeah, because you need to get to get the understanding about the rules, of mm-hmm. course. But I think we really need to go look at the bigger picture again and then starting to make some rules around it. And now we are too much focused. We're too deep into it already and used to have all the cars. We're used to have all the existing rules, which were more made for retired old people on the bicycles to protect them, that they're not going <laughs> to 30 because they will break all their bones. Mm. Yeah, it's all. And, and, and then we're trying to adjust them to make it even safer or something while you know, like you just have to take a few steps back and, and look at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many examples of where where there were so many, there were traffic lights on a crossing road and there were so many accidents. And then at some point they removed the traffic lights and then no accidents anymore. Yes. It's just because people can look <laughs> themselves, you know, and they will actually, it will trigger much better behavior. And that's now with, with electric vehicles too. They can, they try to limit it, limit it, limit it. They can't control it anymore. And they try to even enforce it more, but then you even get more and more people want to go faster, faster. Yeah. And if you're only talking about the top speed of a bike, then yeah, people maybe also have much more need to always drive on that top speed, mm. which is also already weird, right? It's already even weird we're talking about top speed almost. I'd rather have launched this Vemo V and not talk about the top yes. speed. Just saying it's a fast yes. bike. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. cars don't talk about top speed that much anymore because it's not so relevant anymore. Mm. Mm. It's about how fast you want to go. Yes. Yeah, I can see all of these things. And, and again, right, it's going to be a provocative, in some ways, it's a provocative statement from you guys. And that, like, that's why I was quite excited to, to bring you on to talk about it. <laughs> it's because you didn't go for, for example, the cargo bike or a utility bike or anything. You went for something that's gorgeous and fast. And it's the sort of, it feels to me a little bit like the, as you say, <laughs> You know what? What do people want to do? They want to go fast. They want to have. They want to have a good-looking vehicle that they really like. And I think that you've really nailed it with that. And I can't wait to have a chance to write it. But I feel like I'm just conscious of time, and I know we need to jump off soon. And I want to make. I've got a whole heap of other questions that I want to go into. So I would love to hear 
you know, a bunch of other stuff around the company if you're if you're happy to go with that. Unless there's anything else that you wanted to, to just note about the V before we move on. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's good. I think what, what you will see also is that maybe the last thing is that you see that, you know, you see already in, in a lot of contact in the US, you can actually set your bike to how are you using it. You can set it to off-road. And if you use it then off-road, you can set it to a class three e-bike and then you you can you can use it as a class three, which means you also may be a bit limited to on some bike lanes or something. But it's also already much more accepted that you know you, you, you give that responsibility to the rider and you can you can use the, the, the product in a certain mode as where as where you are how you are using it. Uh, I think this is also very interesting. I think the US was really running behind on the <laughs> On, on the on, on the rules but now they're kind of because it's changing the product and environment is changing so quickly that because they're behind and had so little rules it's kind of now getting uh, ahead of the rest you know that's really interesting to see and i see the same with infrastructure amsterdam was this big bicycle infrastructure miracle and now the, actually the bike lanes are way too tiny and congested and <laughs> With coming of e-bikes, the, the bike, the infrastructure is just totally not made for it anymore, and it becomes a bit of a of, of a problem. Now. Yeah, you, you better have some point a fresh start, and then. This is fascinating. I didn't know that this was an issue in Amsterdam. That the the the, the, the e-bikes are introducing other problems in terms because I you know everyone talks about Amsterdam as being the the center for all this stuff. But I take it is it because of the speed differential between e-bikes and other bikes? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. It's mostly speed difference, but also just more people on bikes. We have people doing much uh, greater distances on bikes. So it's just it's just a normal gray thing like we see in other cities. They're just getting very busy on the on this. The bike lanes are very narrow and small, so it needs... <laughs> they had a very interesting try the past few years. They had a tryout, they had a, a normal road for cars, and they made it, they painted another color, uh, of the color of a red of, of a bike lane, and then, and then they put a sign mm. up there, cars are guests, and they just let it go, kind of. I thought it was a really beautiful <laughs> example of how easy it can be. And it works so well. So cars can only go 30k per hour and bikes can, can go almost that speed. So you're seeing this, they're completely sharing the road there together. And, and, and cars take it really easy because bikes are going you know, everywhere because they're, they're kind of the guest mm -hmm. on that. But they can still go there. It's a really beautiful yes. solution and how easy and quick it can be done. Yeah, and it works really well. Mm -hmm. And this also made me thinking, and then in Paris now you see that there's a speed limit in the whole city of 30 km per hour for cars. So it's also extremely interesting because you can see then that how cars and bikes can completely share the same roads. You know, if cars going 30, then and a bike of 30, which I think is in the city a great speed as well, then everyone can just move 30 and you don't really need to have that fight anymore on how many space for a car, how many for a bike. It just works out. It's, it's organically almost. It's, it's really, really mm. nice to see that. Yeah. Mm. Cool. I didn't know about that experiment. Yeah. I think it's really going towards that step. So, so when we saw that it's shared road use and I think it's really really important and on a bike that you really feel part of that traffic so you're not dominating the road there I think this bike will be make a big step there 
Totally. Well, I think the biggest problem that a lot of people have with bikes is that there's just a high speed differential between other vehicles on the road and, and bikes. And that's obviously why e-bikes have been really interesting in that space. Yeah. But I digress. I would love to hear more about the launch of the S3 and the X3 and how that went and what you learned in the process. Because I think the S3 and the X3 for folks who are fans of Van Moof was like a big step change in terms of the, the, the vehicle and like where a lot of people I think came onto the Van Moof journey. Yeah, yeah. We always we always wanted to make it ex- as accessible as possible, and but yeah, it's it's really hard to. In the beginning, that's really difficult because you are, you know, you you have to you have to grow from a niche, and and if you grow from a niche, yeah, we had to develop the whole bike. So yeah, you and and all the components. So the, the cost price was automatically a lot higher, and at some point we really wanted to make that big jump and so the, the price went down a lot we did complete different production and supply chain we built our own factory uh, well it's not owned by us but it's a dedicated Vemu factory which was a really big step and we took a lot more of the supply chain and the components in-house and then we just made the big jump and made it a lot more accessible for because it's interesting in Europe if you talk about an e-bike and you say it's 3000 euro let's say it's it's an average price if you go towards mm. 2000 euro they think it's a very it's a cheap e-bike mm-hmm. because the quality of the bikes are are pretty high and the service level is high mm-hmm. but so if you look at it from, you know, like if you want to compete to other brands, then, then we are quite insanely cheap now, actually, with the, with the 2,000 yes. US dollar, 2,000 euro range. But if you look at it from the people that we're trying to get on the bike who don't own an electric bike yet, mm-hmm. for them, 2,000 euro for a bicycle is a lot of money. So, yeah. And that's the people we're after, you know. I always say we're not competing with other established bike brands. That's not... And, 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 you know, we don't hear our customers thinking about buying something like that or a bad move. But then to pay 2,000 euro for a bike is still, it's still a lot of money for a bicycle. So it's a really different way of thinking. But there to make that, to make that accessible price point is not looking at other bike brands, but it's really looking at what's the sweet spot for people to get on a bike, you know? And, uh, yeah, because I mean, it went gangbusters as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, it was just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which only I could, you know, it was very funny talking to Dave, who's here in New Zealand, and, and sort of saying to him, like, how are things going? And he just, every time I saw him, he was looking at me like, oh, man, it's just it's just pain. It's like the scale-up process of, of being able to deliver this, which I imagine you were, the, like, right at the forefront of, you know. Did you end up having to sleep in the factory any nights? Yeah, not inside the factory, but uh, next to it, yeah, it's... <laughs> it it was insane. I mean, of course, it was great to have. We we didn't really anticipate enough on that growth. It was also right in the, when COVID started, so it was I think at the time where all where almost all bike companies were canceling their orders. It's hard to imagine right now, but that's why still there's so many supply chain problems because because companies canceled all their orders one and a half no years way. ago. And so they wow. sh- they literally all like all the big component factories they literally even cancelled all their their material orders for for aluminium alloy and all those the whole huge operation of a supply chain of the bike industry they kind of uh, yeah everyone was just cancelling everything it was complete chaos and then we launched the bike in in the midst of that chaos and we sold a lot of bicycles it was insane. 
And then, and we were, we just kept going. So we were just, we started full on production right at that time, so like completely against the rest of the industry. And it took a few mm. months for the rest of the industry to find out, oh, actually it's because of the virus, actually people wanna wanna ride a bike because they, you know, for several reasons. But, but then because the whole system, the whole supply chain was shut down for them, then it took so much time to start up again. But we were just going, we were going full speed. But then of course also, yeah, it comes with some problems. We didn't anticipate enough on growing the customer support, for example. So we really had surface customer support issues in uh, later in the year and it came with a lot of growing pain especially last year and, and early this year. Totally. And it was one of those things that was painful to watch from the outside, but just I could see that there was like, you were really trying to do everything you could yeah. to ramp this, knowing everything else was obviously in chaos as well. And I think what you've done, like you did a very good job of communicating that and trying to, you know, trying to be transparent around the challenges of that aspect. And, you know, I've seen seen some comments from the company around that too. Yeah, and it's amazing how understanding our customers are. It's, it's unbelievable. They just really believe in what we're doing. And they know that we're trying really hard and, and, that, and that it's not easy. And that you had people maybe had who had, who had to bring back their bike twice or three times you know in in a half a year last year it could happen we had some startup issues there and then the people were still like, the first thing they would say they come in yeah but i still love the bike i, still, I love you guys yeah but i i just have i have this you know, thing again and can you fix it and of course we always worked crazy hard to get everyone's bike fixed if there was something that wasn't good enough for sure but it's really unbelievable how how that was kind of supported by our riders yeah Yes. Yeah. Well, I think there's, you know, again, I feel similar, like you guys have nailed what feels to me like the Tesla of the e-bike world in the sense of, you know, like you say, people believe in what you're trying to do. And that, and that's, I feel is the same for Tesla owners. You're kind of willing to put up with stuff because you know, you're a bit of an early adopter and you're in the club and you want you guys to succeed. And that's the wonder and the challenge of that as well is you have very passionate fans and so the passionate fans can be exceedingly helpful and also probably like follow you way more closely than and hold you to a way higher standard than anybody else is probably held to. yeah that's also sometimes yeah <laughs> yeah hey well look, i, I want to finish off i had a bunch more questions but we're up on time so i want to just ask how is the supply chains changing off the back of COVID, and how have you thought about or handled this at, at van because i just everybody i talk to in the industry is like supply chains are slammed it's super hard to build bikes right now you know and yet you, most of your bike is proprietary so how has that impacted you how have you thought about that yeah we have it was you know, it was something that we've been like yeah we've been building that for 10 years 10 or 12 years so from the start when i moved to taiwan it was like okay if we want to change anything here in in this industry we have to build it up again on the ground up and and do it our own way and it was always a bit hard to explain this story like even i remember talking to investors or something years ago and they they were all like yeah but how you know how can you ever compete to a component supplier who makes the same similar part but makes them by 10 million you know a year and then you need to make 10,000 a year, how can you ever compete with that? And then it's always difficult to explain. And I always talked about it as 
the biggest advantage is that we have an integrated system, you know, that we are actually able at the end to make functionalities for you know, much smarter and uh, but then for for consumer also but also in way of production so so we can like for mm-hmm. example, i think the the electronic lock is a beautiful example like we we have the best lock by far in the world ever made and it's not because the the lock unit itself in the bike is so great it's a fairly simple lock on the rear wheel at the axle but it's connected to the main computer in a bike, so and that has tracking in it, and then it's connected to what we have in our service platform, the bike hunter. So it's only because all those things combined make it so strong and make it the best bike lock ever. And there will never be a bike lock company or in the world who could, as a bike lock, ever come with a solution like this, because a bike lock mm. itself can never solve it. So that's. I think is a great example and there's also with electronic shifting and many other components that you, we can make it so much smarter by integration. But then how I get to this is the supply chain thing is that at the end and it only showed off really big time when COVID started is that then there was a huge shortage in the supply chains for all the bike makers. But we had all our supply chain in, 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 in the automotive, consumer electronics. So they were all out of the industry. So we didn't have mm. any supply chain issues so far. Of course, we have some challenges and there are shipping challenges, but nothing that we couldn't overcome. So we were not really limited on the production side with quantities. And it's really crazy to think about it now and yeah it doesn't happen a lot but it it worked out well and i'm really happy we can we we don't have any lead times now so if you order a move anywhere in the world you have it within two weeks or a week or sometimes even a day so really really proud of that amazing the one final thing that i'll leave the listeners with is i understand that you when you talk about supply chain stuff you did get a box of or like a container of bikes stuck on the evergrande and the Suez Canal, did you not? <laughs> so you can do everything you want. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't. You know, it was. I was staring the, crashing into the side bikes. of bikes. So there was like one thousand bikes, which is annoying. But then I tell you, there was a lot of bike components on that boat because it was a boat from Taichung, which is the bike capital of the world, almost for component making. And it went to Europe and most others who oh, are wow. uh, still assembling their bike, for example, in East Europe. I know for one company, for example, I will not call the name, but they had 40,000 front forks on the oh, boat. No. So then you have 40,000 of all the other components in a warehouse in Europe and you're waiting for 40,000 front forks because they were on that boat. So in, in that perspective, we were, yes, we had bikes on there, but we we're not that bad hit as, as, as some of the others. Yeah, yeah, uh, amazing. Well, look, I, I, I'm i just so honored that you, you were able to come on and spend time with us and share. It was great to- fi- Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Oliver. No, no, not at all. It's it's great to finally have a chance to talk to you because I've, I've obviously, I talked to Taco and I spent a fair amount talking to Dave and, and others in the company as well. And it's, it's great to finally have a chance to talk yeah. to you about it as well. I just feel we only, talked about so, very little so yeah. we, we, should, <laughs> yeah, we should talk again you know? <laughs> we should we should we should well, yeah. well look we'll make sure to have you on and actually what i'd love to do is have you come and bring the van move v up on stage hopefully in berlin when we have our micromobility europe conference next year 
So it would be awesome to have you I there. Love and, you. Yeah, yeah, marvelous, awesome. And thanks a lot for your great work. I love your uh, newsletter so much. It's it's just awesome. Most welcome. Yeah, no, we love this space. It's just super super fun to follow. And yeah, yeah, again, huge fans of you guys and the work you do as well. So thank you so much.